Are you looking for adventure? Do you want to find peace? Long-distance trails offer you freedom and discovery. They offer a way to connect to yourself and to the world around you at the same time. The most popular trails have become crowded, but there are so many other trails that have plenty of space. The Trails Around the World podcast is here to introduce you to new trails and to new types of trails and to expand your horizons. Join me as we explore finding out what is possible and how to do it. J.R. Harris, welcome to the Trails Around the World podcast. Could you tell us a bit about your background and your, we might say, adventure resume? <laughs> sure. Well, to start with, I'm a native New Yorker. Forget about it. <laughs> Lived here my whole life. Grew up in the city. City so nice, they named it twice, New York, New York. And, uh, you know, I, I was an urban kid. I grew up in the street. My my folks work in class, live in projects, city housing projects. And, uh, yeah, it was a uh, environment, asphalt, concrete, bricks. And I, I knew nothing about mountains or forests or anything like that. Uh, I, I tell people that the first time I ever saw grass, I tried to smoke it. And I, uh, you know, so I, when I'm 14 years old, <clears throat> suddenly my folks say, hey, we're going to sign you up into the Boy Scouts. And I, what do you mean sign me up in the Boy Scouts? You know, you know, for me, like when you grew up in the 1950s, you know, I'm 78 years old, so... Uh, 1950s, when I was a teenager, you, you didn't want to be a Boy Scout if you lived in the city, not this city anyway. And uh, uh, they said, and not only that, we're going to send you to summer camp in the mountains. And I was like, what is going on here? You know, what are you doing to me? You know, I, you're exiling me to, uh, you know, to Siberia. You know, what's going on? And <laughs> They didn't want me to be in the street in the summer. I got it. You know, I, I ran with the crowd. You know, I wasn't uh, doing anything illegal, but, uh, you know, that, that line between legality and illegality for a teenager back then was pretty fine. And my folks didn't want me to cross it. So their, their, uh, their answer to that was to ship me out in the summer up to uh, up to the mountains and be in a Boy Scout camp. Now, uh, when I came back, you know, I went kicking and screaming. I, I didn't want to go. But when I got there, everything started changing. You know, I I started to, to see things I never saw before. I started to learn things I had no idea about, like, how to read a map and how to make a fire and how to use a compass, how to set up a tent, how to live essentially in an environment that I had no uh, experience with before. And that's really what started it. Um, my folks didn't send me up there to, uh, to get fresh air or to experience what it was like uh, to be in the outdoors. I mean, they had no clue. They'd never been there themselves. So they, their idea was to just get me out. Now, when I came home and I was 
first thing I got, as soon as I walked in the door, I asked them if they would send me back the next year. They couldn't believe it. What do you mean? You went crying and yelling, and now you're back and you want to go back again. And I did, and I went back again, and then I went back the year after that again. And that's how I started. You know, I, I not only learned skills that, uh, that are needed to kind of survive in the, in the outdoors and the wilderness, but I also learned to appreciate the wilderness, appreciate the, the environment, the natural habitat of the animals that live there. Uh, you know, something I never shared before, never I had before. I had no clue about it until then. So that's really, that was really the start of it. Way back in the Stone Age. There were dinosaurs up here when I was there. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just <laughs> Well, that was in the Catskills, wasn't it? That was in the Catskill Mountains, yes. Yeah. Two hours from New York, but a million miles away from me yeah. back then. Well, what about hiking, which all of this turned into, I think? Um, what about hiking makes you love doing it? What's special about hiking? Well, here's about hiking. Now, hiking to me is really just putting one foot in front of the other. So I try not to get too, you know, uh, uh, high and mighty about hiking when it's really just a simple thing. You know, I, I love to walk. And uh, hiking is maybe a high, walking a little bit longer or maybe it's walking on a trail instead of a sidewalk. Um what I like about hiking is is seeing the world at you know about two or three miles an hour. You know, it's the pace is just enough to to make some distance, but at the same time uh, to see the, the, what's happening around you, to, to experience the the walking that you're doing, and uh, and for that reason. And that reason alone, I love to walk. I love to walk, you know, whether it's in the city or in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but that's that's really, uh, to me, it's the it's the pace uh, that allows me to uh, to to see what I want to see while at the same time not having to stop and and look around. I can keep on I can keep on moving and uh, keep looking around. So it's really the pace. How long have you been hiking? Uh, about 422 years. I started when I was, I started when I was, you know, a, a, in the scouts and, right, you know, and so, yeah, and I, I've been doing it ever since. I love doing it. I, and I'm doing it now. I still do it, you know, mm-hmm. after all these years. I, and I'm, and I have no intention of stopping doing it. The, you know, now, when I, you know, at first I considered myself a hiker way back then. Uh, I, I got my hiking merit badge, for example, in the Boy Scouts. But uh, then I switched to backpacking. I never really switched to backpacking. I evolved into backpacking. And backpacking to me took it to a different level. Uh, because when I backpack, uh, it's not about try to backpack and try to get somewhere. I use backpacking to get 
to to achieve something that I want to, to learn about or to get to something that I want to see. So it's not really backpacking just for the sake of backpacking. It's backpacking because that's my mode of travel to see something or experience something in the wilderness uh, that I that I want to experience. For example, uh, if I want to visit a community that's way off the grid someplace and I have to walk two days to get there, uh, the backpacking is, is really about getting to where I want to go to see and experience what I want what I want to see. It's kind of a, a mode of travel, if you will. At the same time, uh, what I like about backpacking, and this is what I really like about backpacking, is is living a simpler life. Is living a life where the only thing I have in my possession, all my worldly possessions, are in a pack that I'm carrying on my back. And if it's not there, I don't have it. And if I, if I don't have it, I have to learn to live without it. And so to spend time in the wilderness, a lot of time, which I do, which I like to do, it's so different from my life back home that I feel I'm living uh, two different lifestyles. I'm capable of living both here in the city, but also any wilderness area in the world because I've learned this, the skills as a young kid in the scouts, uh, and I was able to uh, use my curiosity about what's happening in the world to go out and get there, usually by foot. So uh, it, it enables me to, to live a different lifestyle in a different environment. And I love that. You're in your 70s now, I think, right? Oh, yeah, I'm still in my 70s, but not for much yeah. longer. Yeah. <laughs> I had that feeling. So as as someone who's who's in my 50s and and I've got arthritis in my hips and my lower back and and uh I'm I'm trying to figure out how to do not only do more of this but keep doing it as long as possible. What what advice do you have? <laughs> Well, actually, uh, it's pretty simple for me. You know, I, if I have to give advice to somebody, you know, it, it's basically just staying in shape, as, as good a shape as you can stay in. And then whatever shape that is, to then make the adjustment for your hiking or backpacking so that you can still have fun doing it. Uh, because if you're not having a good time, then you're wasting your time. And so when I'm on a trail, you know, sometimes I... I see people who are almost as old as I am out there. But, you know, even when I look at, at my own hiking and backpacking, you know, I can say now, uh, having done it all these years and being 78 years old, my pace is a little bit slower. My The weight that I carry is a little bit lighter. But um, I'm still having fun. I mean, I'm still enjoying it. And... Um, and to be honest, you know, when push comes to shove, I can still drop 20 miles a day. You know, if I have to get there, you know, I can still, you know, I can still crank it up a gear and get where I have to go. But, 
you know, it's it's about the journey, not the destination. And if the journey is pleasant, then everything is good. And so uh, uh, I try to stay in shape. In fact, I love backpacking and traveling the wilderness so much that that is my motivation to stay in shape because I know more than anybody else having done it so long that if you go out there and you're not in shape, it's not going to work. I mean, every minute is going to be a hassle. You're going to wish you were back home. And uh, so, yeah, to me, I, I, I just do what, what they tell you to do, you know, get enough sleep, eat a reasonable diet, uh, you know, don't do anything crazy, get yourself some, uh, you know, be active, go out and walk around or, or what have you. It's really quite simple to me. I also play tennis. I should, I should mention that too. So yeah. uh, I've been playing since I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, just try to stay in shape and then whatever shape you're in, when you get there, just make whatever adjustment you need to make in your, in your hiking or your backpacking so you can have a good time. Well, you mentioned tennis, and that makes me think of the, the, I mean, tennis uses your ankle muscles and such a lot, which, of course, is very important, not only for aging and not falling and having balance and that sort of thing, but also for uh, for hiking. That's that's often, um, well, it's, it's the comparison between cross-country running and road running also, mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you need that mobility in your ankles um, and, and the musculature. Uh, built up in the small muscles there and that sort of thing. Well, it's also uh, it's also important if you're a backpacker or a hiker to to have good boots. I uh, I never uh, I never backed off buying a good pair of boots. You know, if, if it costs a lot of money, I just pay a lot of money. Pays mm-hmm. off in the end. I, I buy the high top boots because I want the support of my ankle, and because it's helpful when I'm carrying a lot of weight. Uh, also, because I, most of my trips are solo, my pack weight is going to be a lot heavier. Well, not a lot heavier, but it's certainly going to be heavier than the average because there's nothing I can share out with somebody. If I'm going with another guy or two or three other people, you know, I can say, all right, you take the stove, you take the first aid kit, you know, you take the water filter, you know, you can kind of share the common stuff. Uh, but being by myself, you know, when, and having to carry it all, um, I want to make sure that my that my feet and my ankles are 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 in good shape, and uh, uh, and so I've always made sure I had the the best boots I could afford. Among through hikers, it's become very popular to uh, use trail runners. Have you ever I, made that switch or tried that? No, no, I'm not a trail runner. I don't like those. Uh, I those the shoes they wear those low low cut boots and lighter uh, boots. I, I don't have the support. I don't feel uh, as confident as I want to feel hiking over rough terrain uh, and carrying a pack. So right. uh, yeah, I'm old school. I, I'm going to carry my. I'm going to wear my heavy boots, and uh, and just not worry about it. Yep. Do you use hiking poles? You know, I always use one pole, you know, from yep. back in the day. As a matter of fact, um, uh, I used to use a, a mop handle as a, as a hiking stick. I cut off the mop and I just took the stick, you know. And, and if you look at 
some of my old photos from back in the day <laughs> that that stick I'm carrying uh, is what I used I used to use to mop the floor, um, and I still have it hanging over here, my old one. Now, of course, you know I I used a lecky, you know, two sticks with. Uh, you know, super lightweight and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And actually, I just started that in my last hikes. The first time I ever used two hiking sticks was a couple of weeks ago on my last backpack. Mm-hmm. Up to then, I, I only had one. Uh, and I don't know. That that was how it was back then. Nobody used two, you know, way back then. Yep. I'm a relic, man. <laughs> But it works. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> so in this episode, we plan to talk about the Canal Heritage Trail. Right. I had approached you and I'd, I'd asked about another trail that you'd done recently. And, and, and you suggested this uh, instead. And it's a, a long trail through the deep wilderness of the Yukon Territory in Canada. Do I have that right? Uh, well, actually, it's the Northwest Territories. It Northwest starts, Territories. It goes from the border of the Yukon Territory okay. across the Mackenzie Mountains to, uh, to the Mackenzie River in the Northwest Territories. Um, and so I've, it, you have a book. We'll talk about it at the end, I think. Um, and uh, it is a chapter in your book that talks about this. Now, it was originally built as a pipeline route during World War II, right? Yes. It was a, uh, a pipeline from the northernmost oil fields that were known back in the 1940s. That oil field was on the Mackenzie River in Canada, at a place called Norman Wells. That's where the wells were. Um, and right after the attack uh, at Pearl Harbor, which started World War II, the uh, American uh, military planners uh, were fearful that there would be a Japanese invasion and that it would come through the Aleutian Islands and Alaska and then down through Canada into the west coast of the United States. The strategy they came up with was to uh, meet that invasion if it occurred as far from the lower 48 as possible. Let's do it, they said, up in Alaska. This is the reason why the Army built the Alaska Highway right away to have a roadway up through uh, Canada into Alaska. And uh, they were able to move a lot of equipment up there, planes and tanks and trucks and everything but there was no oil and that was the big problem there and the uh the only existing oil fields up in norman wells uh was a good 600 miles from the alaska border so they uh the u.s army corps of engineers they came up with this idea of let's build a pipeline uh from the oil fields uh, all the way across the mountains and down into just below the Alaska border at a Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory where they built the refinery. So they were going to pipe that oil all the way across those mountains uh, so that they would have a supply readily available 
in Alaska. And so you might ask, well, why didn't they just put the oil in a ship, an uh, oil tanker or what have you, and ship it up there that way? And, and the reason they didn't do it was because they were afraid that the Japanese submarines uh, would torpedo the oil and it would never get there. So for that reason, um, they decided to build this oil well, uh, this oil pipeline rather. And, and they called it Canal Pipeline, Canal meaning Canadian oil. And, uh, you know, what fascinates me is how big this project was and how nobody knows about it. Yep. You know, to, to build that pipeline in the early 1940s, it had never been done before, uh, especially in that terrain, that kind of terrain on Muskeg and and uh, tundra uh, they had so much to learn plus they had to do it so quickly they needed that oil right away and so they basically threw a lot of money at it and they and the thing became enormous uh, at its peak there were 50,000 men working on this pipeline it cost the government 300 million dollars in 1942 money this is more expensive than the Panama Canal and bigger, a bigger project than the Hoover Dam. Wow. And yet nobody knows about it. Yeah. I mean, that's really what fascinated me. You know, it's like, wow, how could that happen? Uh, now, the fact that they were able to build that pipeline, uh, given the uh, weather conditions, the, the terrain, uh, the speed with which they had to build it, the lack of knowledge that they had trying to, to build it over those swampy, muskeggy terrain. It, it was, this project was amazing. It was really amazing. And nobody ever heard about it. And, and they completed it in something like 18 months, right? Yeah, they completed it in just less than two years, which is amazing. They had, yeah. they had oil spills. They had snowstorms, they had swarms of biting bugs, they had all kinds of animal grizzly bears and everything up there. Um, and yet they were so determined to to push this pipeline through. And keep in mind now, this pipeline, I mean, the pipe itself was only about 22 centimeters. It was only, you know, less than, what, 10 inches across, you know, in diameter. And they laid that pipe right on the ground, which is unheard of now, you know, and the right. ground was not exactly level. I mean, that ground was not exactly flat. Right. Uh, so, yeah, enormous problems. And then the other thing that made it huge was how do you get all the equipment that you need to build a pipeline all the way up to Norman Wells to begin with and then across the, the Mackenzie Mountains? enormous amount of, of supplies that had to be up there for all those men, for all those um, miles. I mean, just the number of pipes that you need. Right. They shipped up 250,000 tons of equipment up through the wilderness in, 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 in an area where it had just never been done before. Well, and this is before the age of helicopters. Before the age of helicopters, before the age of, of freight uh, planes that could carry heavy loads, right? Uh, 
they they had to ship everything up through the United States into Canada to a, a place in Alberta called Waterways. This was the northernmost railroad in all of North America back then. Now, once it got, but once it got there, it was still 1,100 miles from there to Norman Wells. And it was on the Athabasca River. You had to take that river all the way down until it, it emptied into the, the Great Slave Lake, and then across that huge, huge lake in a different kind of boat to the uh, where it outlets at the beginning of the Mackenzie River, one of the longest rivers in the world, and then down the Mackenzie River all the way to um, Norman Wells, which is just below the Arctic Circle. And so anything that they ship from, from the railhead in waterways to Norman Wells, it took over a month to get there. And they were shipping, again, a quarter of a million tons right. uh, of, of equipment up there. Unbelievable. And this is even before they started building the pipe. I mean, this is in order to build the pipeline. And, and how many miles or kilometers long is this? Is the pipeline? Yeah, or is the route either either way? Well, yeah, the the uh, the route to get the the equipment there is a, is a good eleven hundred miles. <clears throat> then the pipeline itself from Norman Wells into Whitehorse, where the refinery was, it's about six hundred miles. Mm -hmm. uh, now there were other uh, smaller extensions of the pipeline in and around the. Uh, the refinery that, that were built later on with the basic pipeline. <clears throat> that's how long it was. And how many, how, how much distance did you do? So the, the, um, the section, well, what happened was of course, um, by the time they got the pipeline finished, the U S Navy fought the Japanese at the battle of Midway. Right. And basically sank four aircraft carriers and, and put a real hurting on the Japanese Navy uh, to the extent that the threat of invasion pretty much died away. Um, and not only did it die away, but shipping was reopened again and, and oil that they wanted to ship up to Alaska, they could now do it in a ship instead of depending on the oil pipeline. The pipeline itself, there were a lot of problems maintaining it because in the winter, uh, the pipe would crack. There would be a lot of leaks. They would have to get crews out there to do it. It was a very expensive, very tedious um, uh, endeavor. And so uh, after that Battle of Midway, they decided basically that they didn't need the pipeline anymore. You know, it had only been open like six months. Right. And, uh, and and so they decided to just close it down and pretty much forget that they ever did it. They they they, they shipped all the people back out. Uh, they left most of the equipment is still there. <clears throat> they did uh, take some of the pipe. They, they sold it off. Uh, but, you know, if you if you go out there, what happens is about every. 40 or 50 miles, you know, you're walking through this beautiful, pristine mountain uh, wilderness and you come to an old 
road maintenance camp or an old pump station and the old Quonset huts, you know, that are deteriorating. All of the equipment is, is still there. It's all rusting out. And then you, you know, you leave it and you back into the wilderness again for another couple of days. And then 40, 50 miles later, you come to another one. So, you know, all the remnants of the, of the pipeline um, are still there all these years later. Now the, the pipeline, of course, they had to build a maintenance road alongside the pipeline. Right. And that road from the, from the Norman Wells, the pipeline itself, which was called mile one, all the way up to the border of the Yukon and Northwest Territories, that 233-mile stretch is now called the Cano Heritage Trail. Okay. And that's the segment that I walked. Okay. So uh, off the top of my head, conversions here, um, to get it in, which isn't as much relevant to, to what you hike now, but that was, uh, you said, 1,100 miles, so that's about 1,800 kilometers. And um, you said that the length of the pipeline was about 600 miles, so maybe 950 mm-hmm. kilometers. And then you said that the distance of the current um, trail is... Right. 233 miles from okay. McMillan Pass right on the border down to the Mackenzie River. Okay, um, ballpark is 350. Here, let me do a conversion on that, um, since that's probably the most important number for people thinking about this. Yep. Um, okay, 233 miles 300. is 375 kilometers. 375. Yep, that's it. So, One kilometer at a time. <laughs> That's a big walk. (laughs) It's a stroll. It's a stroll. And and I'll tell you something else. In that whole entire stretch, there is not a single town. There's nobody living there. Uh, There's nothing there except wilderness. It's one of the the largest uh, wilderness areas left in all of North America. Then as now, still still the same way. It's not a national park. It's not a national forest. It has no designation. Uh, the, the local First Nations or Native people still live there. Uh, but even they don't live there. They, they live mostly on the Mackenzie River. They may go into that area to hunt and fish, but nobody lives there. And when I did that, that hike... I didn't see another single hiker in the entire stretch that I did. And it took me three weeks. I was there 20 days. And that's, it seems to me, really the incredible thing about this. I mean, this, it, it's almost, well, it is difficult to express. This is one of the most remote places in the world. That's right. That is true. I mean, I've I've been on islands way out in the Pacific, mm-hmm. and realized this is one of the most remote places in the world. And I was out in uh, I was uh, in Afghanistan on the border with Iran, right. and that was that was probably the uh, in terms yeah. of mainland that was one of the most remote places I've ever been. Uh, as I was flying in there, it was <laughs> you know, wow. There's not much here. Um, <laughs> 
but this place you're talking about, uh, oh, it's huge. Nobody it's else. Really huge. No, no, nobody goes there. I mean, uh, you could you could charter a plane and fly in, go and do some hunting, and then you go back out, you know, a couple of days later. But there's nobody there. there you know, there was never anybody there, and there's still nobody there. It's just off the grid. It's too far away. You can't farm there. You can't raise any cattle. You can't do any grazing. There's no trees to cut down. But having said that, it's gorgeous. It is beautiful. You know, if you like mountain scenery, this place gives it to you, you know, and, and gives gives it to you in, in big heaping doses. It's really uh, tremendous, you know, spectacular uh, scenic route. Kenzie Mountains. So I, I, again, trying to explain the, the scale of that. If if one thinks about the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, which are the two of the big three trails in the U.S. that are more remote, um, the Appalachian Trail is pretty well known to you know, it, it, it doesn't go through towns so often, but it goes near enough that uh, one can resupply every every few days. But even on the Pacific Crest Trail and, and the Continental Divide Trail, it's I, my understanding is it's, it's unusual that one has to carry more than seven or eight days of food or almost unheard wow. of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I... You know, I've done, I, I, I know, maybe 800 miles on the Continental Divide and maybe 600 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe six or 700 miles on the App Trail. Um, but, yeah, you're right. You can, you can resupply. You can get, you can even get stuff mailed in to the nearest post office that you're, that you're walking through a town. Uh, out on the Camel Trail, uh, you have none of that. Um, in fact, the trail itself, in a lot of places, is is just overgrown because it hasn't been used. It was a gravel trail; it was never paved, <clears throat> and um, and large sections of it, uh, over the years, it's just kind of overgrown. Now you can still pretty much see it most of the places, uh, but the other factor is that all of the rivers and streams that had to be crossed. And the army, of course, they built bridges across there. But those bridges are long since gone. They got washed away, by usually by the spring floods, uh, just wiped them away. And so um, you have to make your way across all these rivers and streams uh, on your own. And, and that's probably the biggest uh, objective hazard to, um, <clears throat> to doing the trail. The, the Cattle Trail, let's just say it right from the beginning, is really not for beginners. Uh, this, is a, this is a trail that you probably shouldn't try unless you have uh, experienced backpacking in the wilderness and that you're comfortable on a very long trip uh, with uh, very little chance of being rescued right away if you get in trouble. You know, apart from that, it's not, it's not really a 
difficult trip in the sense that the Channel Trail used to be a road. It was a maintenance road for a pipeline. And because of that, it's not really super steep. There's no climbing. There's no rock scrambling on this on this route. Uh, there's not even really uh, major navigational problems because the rail, uh, because the trail pretty much follows um, <clears throat> in the valleys and along the different rivers. So uh, it's, it's easy to find it. It's easy to stay on the trail. But the trail itself is, uh, is not like trails here in the States that are, that are maintained. It's just, you know, it's there. You have to sometimes push your way through it, uh, through the undergrowth. But, um, uh, but you could still find it. It's not for beginners. This is, this is a place where you don't want to get stuck uh, because you don't know how to get out of a situation that you're in. In fact, I'll tell you something. When I when I was there, when I did this trail, it was in it was in 1997, right? And when I showed up in in Norman Wells, there which which was a had a population there of about 300. You know, 90% of them were uh, Native uh, Canadians or First Nations people. And they see this guy get off the plane and go walk into town. I'm all alone. And they're like, who are you? And like, why are you here? And I told them I was going to walk the trail. And they thought I was crazy. You know, they said, Dad, you don't want to do that. You know, uh, we don't even go out there. You know, and uh, and I said, no, I'm going to go. And so they, they said, listen, about a month ago, earlier this summer, the the Canadian army sent a group of of uh, like uh, special ops people to go on a training mission along the Cannell trail and they had to get rescued and now you're telling me they say you're telling me now that, that you're gonna take <laughs> you're gonna take yourself by yourself you know uh, I, you know I was like 50 some years old at the time and you're gonna do this trail alone I said yeah and they said, if, if, if the special ops people can't do it, what makes you think you can do it? And I said, well, the special ops people are not backpackers, you know, and I'm a backpacker. And they were saying, listen, you know, you see these mountains around this town? I said, yeah, I see them. He said, why don't you go spend like two weeks up in these mountains close to the town here and then just go back to New York and tell everybody that you hiked the Cannell Trail? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, man. <laughs> But they didn't believe they didn't believe I could do it. So I I say that to say uh, uh, it, it's not a it's not a trail for beginners. And you know here's the thing too. Now when I finished the, the the route, you know three weeks later, and I'm walking back into the town, and and this guy comes by in a pickup truck, and he rolls he stops stops the truck, rolls the window down, and he goes Jr. Jr. He made it back. Now, I never saw this guy in my life, okay? I don't know how he knew my name or whatever. Uh, I, I said, yeah, I came back. He said, oh, when did you get back? I said, I'm just getting back right now. He said, oh, that's incredible. I said, well, what's so incredible about it? I mean, what are you talking about? So he says to me, listen, when you left, everybody in the town got together and they 
they they had a lottery to try to guess when you would come back. And everybody kicked in some money and they picked a day and a time. And the person who gets uh, closest to your your you know arrival time wins the pot. And then he said, now if if people didn't think you were ever coming back, their money went into like a little separate pot. And if you never showed up, the people who said that, they would split that money. So I said, well, how many people put their money in the, in the pot there that said I would never come back? And he said, oh, just about everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, thanks a lot. And I, yeah. and suddenly, I came back. And at exactly the day I said I was coming back. And and the one guy <laughs> who who picked that day <laughs> and, and won all the money, uh, he actually threw a big what they called it, they called it a sheep feast. And we went out to his like ranch just outside of town or his homestead. And he had we had a big everybody in the town was there. It was really nice, uh, really a nice get together. But they were so surprised to see me showing up again. Uh, so again, I you know I say it's not a <laughs> it's not a trail for beginners. But if you if you have experience and you want to see if you want to have a um, an adventure and do something that's that's different in a, in a place that has pristine beauty, but that can be incredibly uh, unforgiving. That's the place to go. That that's the trail to take. And as you would imagine, uh, the first thing I did was go and, and put the name into a search engine. And there is you you can find stuff on this, and it's been updated now recently. Yeah. Well, can. I mean, it's not, there aren't a lot more people doing it now. No, no, I, I can understand why, and and it's not just because of the trail. It's also, uh, it's, it's, it's expensive. You know, I'll say it that way. What I did when I got to Norman Wells, I decided the way I had planned the trip and the way I would recommend anybody who wants to do it is to, is to go out, fly out to, to, North, to um, McMillan Pass, fly out to the far end of the Cannell Trail on the border with the Yukon and then walk back to the town. And so what I did was I, I chartered a, a bush pilot and bush plane in Norman Wells. And I had him fly me all the way out to the end uh, so I could walk back. But on that flight out to the end, uh, I had the pilot land twice. And at each place, I jumped out and I, and I stashed a week's worth of supplies. And so when I got to my drop-off place, I had to carry one week's worth of supplies to get me to the first resupply. And then from there, that took me to the second resupply a week later. And then that, that supply took me back uh, to Norman Wells. So I, I, I didn't have to carry more than a week. Right. Uh, and and that, that, I think, is the easiest way because I've read about people who have gone the other way, who started walking from... Norman Wells all the way out to the end and then arrange for a plane to come out and pick them up. But if you do it that way, 
then you have the problem of you have to make sure you get there in time. You know, there there's no uh, easy way to to communicate back and forth uh, if you're if you're running late or anything like that. Or maybe there is now. Now understand when I did it, there was no GPS, there was no cell phone, there was no you know was, internet was just starting. I was totally cut off for for the whole three weeks. Nobody could contact me and I couldn't contact anybody. And so I wanted to structure my trip where I didn't have to rendezvous with any anybody. I didn't have to make sure I got to a certain place at a certain time. Uh, it was just, let me walk. I know where my food supply is and I'll just keep walking until I get back uh, to, to Norman Wells. And That's an excellent point. I mean, now with satellite communications, you have you know, Garmin inReach and, and Zolio yeah. and this kind of thing, you can relatively affordably stay in touch from, from a place like that and, and communicate mm-hmm. with, you know, by text messages or, or even carry a sat phone and a, uh, yeah. Iridium or something and, and talk with the bush pilot and get yourself rescued, which, which makes it much more doable, I suppose. Oh yeah. Yeah. no question about it. I think also it's important to emphasize what you're saying about logistics that I, I know I did the, we were mentioning the Pacific Crest Trail earlier. I've, I've through hiked the John Weir Trail and mm-hmm. the John Weir Trail does the, um, the essentially the, the high part in the Sierras of the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm-hmm. And it includes the, what, what I understand to be the longest carry uh, of food uh, on the Pacific Crest Trail, which is about eight days. Um, so I, I did that. And um, going back to your point about having a week of food per place, that's pretty close to the limit of what one can carry on one's back, especially in a bear canister, which you probably didn't have at the time, but now mm-hmm. one would probably do that. Yeah. 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 It's uh uh, it, it was heavy load um, because even the freeze dried food, I, you know, and, and the equipment that, that we had back then or that was available back then, you know, there was no such thing as ultra light, you know, or everything was what it was, you know, and, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, I, you know, I, I carried all my garbage out, you know, and there was no place I could leave it. I was carrying at the end, I was carrying three weeks worth of garbage, you know, in addition to all my other stuff. Uh, but uh, that's, you know, that's the way it was. And, and that's the way it is. It was worth it. it was, it was, it's my favorite trip. And I've done over 50 trips around the world that were longer than two weeks. And plus, I don't even know how many that were shorter than two weeks. And, and that one is one is one that really stands out among all the rest of them. And, well, that's an uh, amazing statement. Yeah, it is. It is because I've seen a lot and I've been a lot of places and I spent a lot of nights sleeping on the ground. This place is spectacular, you know, and, and, and with the story behind it as well, you know, it's uh, it's like a once in a lifetime thing. And I I really hope that they never fix it up or they never make it easy. You know, I, I probably shouldn't say that, you know, it's probably a lot safer 
if they went in somehow to Canadian uh, government and and put a a little bridge across all those all those places where I had to walk through the water and and somehow make it uh, more doable or, or safer, maybe even fly a patrol plane, you know, across that route every couple of days or something like that. There's been talk about doing it over the years, but I don't think it's going to happen because most people never heard of the Cannell Trail and very few people do it. But I thought that was one of the one of the good things about it is that you're not going to get, you know, people passing you on the trail every 10 minutes. Uh, you know, you have that you have it all to yourself, basically, that whole corner yeah. of the world. Yeah, you're not going to have a trail family out there. Uh, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> not really. Unless it's a family of bears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could happen. Yep. Or wolves. Uh, yep, yep. Yeah, that was, was that where you had that experience with the wolves? Yes. Yeah, I was about 10 days in. And I uh, I made a camp uh, in an in an old torn down building uh, that was right off the road that had been used. Um, I believe it was a uh, a pump station, not a road maintenance camp. I don't know what it was, but when I got there, there was half a roof there, you know, and so there was part of the floor was still there, and so I could set my tent up on a nice flat surface there with a little shelter of a roof overhead and uh after dinner you know i was just standing around enjoying the scenery with my little mug of chocolate and i i saw a wolf was you know 10 feet in front of me and and i never saw it coming i never heard it and it wasn't threatening me or anything it was just like uh looking at me and then i looked over the other direction i saw another one and then another one then another one i saw six of them and then they were they were acting like uh, I mean they knew I was there, but they weren't uh, doing anything threatening to me. And, and you know it occurred to me that they'd probably never seen a human before. And then the alpha dog comes up like really close, and then I got really scared because I didn't know if you should look at them or avoid looking at them. You know. I, this whole thing about, you know, with a grizzly, you don't want to look at the grizzly because they'll take it as a sign of aggression. But yet, you know, I was thinking if, you, if I don't look, if I look away, maybe they'll think I'm I'm afraid. You know, it's a, it's a sign of cowardice and maybe they'll attack me. But none of that happened. You know, after, you know, a couple of tense moments, uh, the, that alpha wolf turned and walked away and, and uh, the tension was broken. And they they still hung around, and uh, I remember I uh, I wanted to take a photo of them, but I didn't have my camera. It was behind me in my tent, you know. And I at some point I, I reached around to grab it, and when I when I turned around, they were gone, mm-hmm. you know. And and I believe they I believe they heard something, you know, another animal probably, and they decided. We're getting a little hungry, you know. Let's not look at this ugly dude here. Let's go out and see if we can get some dinner. And they were gone. I waited. Jeez, I was hoping they would come back. Uh, but 
it was it was the it was the closest and and most incredible wildlife encounter I ever had. Those the half hour or so that those wolves were there, you know, two three meters away, wow. uh, or less, very close. You know, and beautiful beautiful animals, really uh, really fit and really uh, healthy, um, mesmerizing eyes. Uh, it was just an uh, extraordinary experience. Never forget it. Way out there. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone can, can go on your website and see that, that you're not joking about having a lot to compare it to. So your, your, uh, your statement that it's your favorite of all the trails you've done is, uh, yeah. is, is a huge statement to make. Oh yeah, it is. I, you know, again, you know, I've been in the desert, I've been in the jungle, I've been in the mountains, you know, I've been all over the world, you know, for, you know, it's almost 60 years now. And, uh, to say that this is, you know, this is the one that's on top. Uh, there was a lot to compare it against and, um, you know, very memorable trip. It's an extraordinary place. You know, I, I would, uh, recommend it. And I have talked about it to people who have, uh, some experience and are looking for a new thrill or a new place to go or looking for something different on a trail. And I say, yeah, go on up to Northern Canada, do the Kennel Trail. To my knowledge, nobody's ever done it that I that I that I spoke to, but um, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, you know, it's it's still there. You know, it'll be there. Uh, According to the websites that came up, um, they've actually they've been cleaning it up, so mm -hmm. it sounds like it's it's no less wild, but it's a, a little more pristine, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, they talk about cleaning it up and and making it a thing, and and I think it might happen. You know, it's um, I, I believe though it's it's still going to be somewhat expensive to do it there. There are cheaper places you can go, but at the same time, if you if you want to do something that's that's off the grid and something that you're going to remember for a very long time. I think you should go online and check out the Canal Heritage Trail. Right. Let's see what it's all about. And it's also actually a a relatively manageable period of time. I mean, three weeks. Yeah. Is uh, the John Weir Trail is. Yep. In that range. Um, Sierra High Route, same. It's about three weeks, three four weeks. Yep. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, people do longer treks than that yeah. Uh, yeah so you're right i think it's a manageable time time frame yeah the gr gr20 in corsica it's about that yeah yeah the yeah as they say in french or yeah. as they say in corsica <laughs> but then you have to add a couple of days you know uh in front and in back just to get of course. there i mean it's not accessible yeah readily accessible. I mean, I flew from New York City to 
Montreal. Then I switched uh, planes and I flew from there to Edmonton, Alberta. And then the next plane up to uh, Norman Wells didn't leave until the next day. So I had to spend a night in Edmonton. And then the next day, take the, the like one flight a day, or back then it was maybe four flights a week up to uh, Norman Wells. <clears throat> I sat in Norman Wells three or four days because the weather was bad and right. pilot couldn't fly. And uh, and then when I when I uh, when I got back and was uh, on my way home, I basically had to retrace. You know, it was kind of a two-day trip from there back to New York. Right. Maybe it's changed now, but it's still way out there. What was the timing of the trail? I mean, you're talking about weather restrictions or other limitations. So what season can one do this trail in or does one need to do this trail in? Well... First of all, don't do it in the winter time. the The best time would be the time I did it, I believe, and that's late summer. I started in like uh, early to mid September, maybe, or maybe it was late August even. Um, if you go too soon, uh, like in the in the early summer or late spring, you're going to get swarmed by by bugs, you know, and and Take it from somebody who's been in Alaska during the wrong time of the year, you know, with the the black flies in the daytime, mosquitoes at night, you're not, you know, it's just too much. If you wait uh, until later in the summer when the bugs start dying away and the, the melting snow that's in the springtime and overflows the rivers, that's all gone. And so I would say, you know, uh, the sweet spot, would be from late August to mid-September. Now, when I did it, uh, I started out and, and the weather was great. But, uh, you know, by the time, you know, two, two and a half, three weeks in, it started getting cold and it actually started snowing. I had several days of snow. Now it can snow there any day of the entire year. Uh, so there is no way that you can guarantee not having bad weather. You may get lucky and it's all good. But uh, if I were going again and if I somebody asked me when's the best time to go, uh, that's what I would tell them. You know, I would start maybe the third or fourth week in August and do it uh, for three weeks into mid-September. So you mentioned that you did not do this ultralight. And it's it's after Ray Jardine came up with the term, um, but it's before it really became yeah. popular. Um, you know, which is around the the turn of the month. I mean, the, the early aughts is is when ultralight really started getting big, and and this is five or ten years before that. Um, but what sort of equipment did you use? Anything out of the ordinary for a backpacking trip? What sort of shelter were you carrying? What did you actually use? I'd say I had all these standard equipment. It's just that it wasn't, I mean, it was the latest equipment for 25 for years that ago. Time period, you know? yeah. uh, and, and it was good stuff. I mean, I, 
you know, I've always, you know, I, I want the best equipment that I can get because almost every trip I take, I'm alone. And I don't want to have a, an equipment breakdown. Uh, and I want to be able to have confidence in, in the gear that I'm carrying. Um, <clears throat> and so I had good stuff, but, you know, uh, it was heavy. You know, it was, I was, I was wearing wool, for example, you know, in terms of clothing. I had, a, I had a, an excellent tent. Back then it was called the Bibbler Eye Tent. Mm-hmm. It was, the, it was a, a single skin, uh, very lightweight, two-person tent, self-standing. Uh, and, uh, and I'm still using a Bibbler tent. Well, now they, Bibbler sold it to uh, Black Diamond. And Black Diamond now sell, sells the same tent. They still call it an eye tent. That tent is fantastic. Um, it was it was lightweight for its for its time because it had no uh, had no canopy. It didn't really need one. It was a waterproof Gore-Tex, and so you know I didn't have to worry about my shelter. And uh, you know I I had leather boots back then, which on that trip uh, you know I probably had those boots already several years, so they were well broken in. I had I had a, a plenty of clothing because. The weather was so variable, and um, I didn't want to get caught with not enough clothes and, and being cold. Uh, and so, with uh, with what's happening out here now, with all the fleece and uh, and all that good stuff, you know, I could probably uh, be just as comfortable with with less clothing. You know, I I didn't have a puffy or anything to keep me warm. Uh, I had a, <laughs> I had a camera that used film. Does anybody remember film? You know, they used to have film in the camera, folks. I, uh, yep. And, <laughs> and on these, <laughs> on these trips, you know, I would take, you know, like 20 rolls of film. Yeah. But that's a big bag of film. And, and you had to back in the day. Um, make sure that it never got wet, make sure that it never got cold, make sure that it didn't get stepped on or sat on or slept on. I carried it in a large Ziploc bag, and even Ziploc bags were fairly new back then. And, and the other thing about, about film was you had only a finite number of pictures that you could take. Yeah. So once you ran out of film, that was it, you know, as opposed to a digital camera, you could put another uh, tab or whatever you call it in the in the thing and take more photos. You could take as many as you want. Also, with the digital camera, you could take a photo and then look at it to see if it came out. Yeah. And if it didn't, you could just while you're standing there, you take another picture. Yep. Uh, what I had to do is, if I don't end up a shot, you know, I and I and I took the photo. I wouldn't know until I got home if if it was in really in focus or if it turned out right. Uh, so, uh, apart from having it as a whole separate uh, piece of a bag full of equipment, if you want to call it that, which had its own weight, and be, and also you had to safeguard it the whole trip, and then you wouldn't see it until you got home. Then you had to take all those rolls and you had to go pay to have all the film developed. Yeah, uh, and that was the first time I I would see what I had, you know, and so. Uh, you know, now with digital cameras, everything is different. Now, of course, you got GoPro, you got all the other, you know, everybody's videoing. Yeah, and, yeah. And taking drones and all this kind of stuff. Uh, 
Then well, no I, I know the, the last film camera, but I mean, I, I, like you, I went through several different film cameras over the years, but the last one I was using was, was actually the oldest. It was a 1960s Nikonos, which was a waterproof camera um, that was used by a lot of photographers in Vietnam, apparently. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was, it was a diving camera. So you, it, there was nothing that was going to, it was heavy. It, and I, it even stopped some bullets uh, for, for some journalists, apparently. Um, but uh, it didn't need batteries. Or I, I still have it, so it doesn't need batteries, um, and that's a big difference, also. <laughs> yes. yes. So yeah, batteries are heavy, you know. Yeah, um, but that was the that was the upside of of the the film cameras is uh, if you if I mean, you didn't have to worry about running yeah. out of juice. Yeah. That's right. You know, although I did have a camera once that uh, the mechanism that you know, it used to be when you took a picture, it would spin to the next picture. And then you would take that one and it would advance the film. And and I, I had a camera where that mechanism broke and the film would not advance. Yep. And, you know, so you had all these other, you know, problems with, with cameras. You know, you couldn't take the film out, otherwise you would expose expose it. That's and right. all the other pictures that you took. That's right. So don't take digital cameras for granted. You know, they're great. <laughs> Yes, and you absolutely. Don't have to take film anymore. Well, and now people just use their phone. Um, That's right. <laughs> so, and and you've touched on this already, but skills, knowledge, and abilities that a person would need to undertake these this adventure. What would you say the most important ones are, and what are the different ways that people could acquire those skills, knowledge, and abilities? Well, you know, the, the skills, knowledge, and abilities for this trip uh, are, are essentially the same as any long backpack. The, uh, the critical factor, as far as I'm concerned, is really confidence. And that you have to be confident that what you know is going to get you through without anything tragic or anything really bad happening to you because you didn't know how to do it. The other thing about it is even if you have all the skills and knowledge and whatever, it was the planning. You know, you have to uh, you have to do re you know real due diligence. You need to get you know a, a set of maps and sit down and study, you know, where you are, where you, where all the, especially where all the water crossings are. The, the crux to this whole canal trail is crossing the water, crossing the rivers. And one river in particular is, is called the, the Twitya River, was too deep to ford and, and, and pretty broad going across. The, the thing with the rivers is that when the, when the pipeline was built, when they came to a river, they, they built the bridge across the narrowest part uh, of the rivers, obviously, so that the bridge wouldn't be too long. But the narrowest part of a river is the place that you don't want to cross yep. if you have to cross it. 
because it's it's going to be too deep and the current's going to be too big. Yeah. So whenever you're following, so following the Canal Trail, when you get to a a place and suddenly the, there's a river there, you know that you can't cross it there. Mm. And so then you have to go upstream and look, and then downstream and look, and find a safe place uh, to get across. Now, if you didn't know that, then you could be in a in a bit of trouble. But you know, I I had the maps, and I you know I studied the maps, and I could see where these various rivers got widened out and therefore narrower and with less current, and I could mark them off as possible places to cross. Now with this Twitya River, this is the one where the Canadian military uh, couldn't get across it. You know, uh, um, back in the day, the information I had said when you get to the Twitya River, you have to build a raft. Build a raft? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) You know, I mean... It was out of the question. I mean, you're going to bring a saw, and what are you going to tie it up together and, and all that? So before I left home, I, I had to figure a way to get across this river uh, and several other rivers that were pretty big. And what I came up with was, uh, you know, some people bring like uh, uh, truck inner tubes, you know, and they inflate them and then you tie your pack to the tube you know how much a truck inner tube weighs? (laughs) I mean, it's huge. And, you know, anyway, so I, I was trying to figure out how to get across. And, uh, while I was doing that, I was, I was drinking a glass of wine that came in a cardboard container. And inside that container, the wine was in a, in a bladder. Yep. And when I finished the the wine, I took the bladder out and I blew it up and and the air stayed in it. And I said, well, now, if I had several of these bladders, because they were very lightweight and, and pretty sturdy, you know, heavy duty plastic. To carry the water. I could blow them up when I got there. And then tie one at each end of my backpack until the pack would float, and then I would I would uh, put all my stuff inside the pack. Uh, I would put it in, uh, wrap it up in big plastic garbage bags so it wouldn't get too wet. Right. And then I would take the pack and put it in the water and let it float, and then kind of swim across the water while pushing the floating backpack ahead of me and uh with that kind of a system it was lightweight it was easy to carry i could set it up whenever i whenever i needed to set it up i even had a separate bladder that i blew up and i was and i could attach it to my to my chest like a like a life preserver mm-hmm. you know and uh i remember before i left home I, I went down to a lake just to because I wanted to try it, see if it would work. Uh, and so I, I took my, up my pack, and I remember I filled it with uh, with like four gallon jugs of water, so it would be heavy. And then I, I I stuck these inflated bladders, you know, tied tied it to the pack, mm-hmm. tossed it in the water, and it floated fine. 
you know? Mm -hmm. And so I say all that to say, you got to plan it out. You know, you have to anticipate, you know, the things that could, that could happen uh, to you while you're on the trip and, and have some kind of response for it. So, uh, it, it, again, it comes down to, to knowledge and experience and mostly it turns out to, it, it, it comes down to confidence and whether or not you have the, uh, the, the confidence that your knowledge, your skill set, your fitness, and your experience are going to be enough to to get you through while you are having fun. Because I always go back to, if you're not having a good time, you may as well stay home. Now, of course, every trip has its hard parts and easy parts, so nothing is fun from beginning to end. But you don't want to be suffering out there because you overlook something or you didn't plan for something or anything like that. So I would say careful planning uh, and good fitness and confidence and, and you're good to go. I'm listening to the, to what you're saying about getting across these rivers. And are you familiar with what a pack raft is? Yes, I am. Yeah. So that I think now one would probably use, I think they, uh, They're down around six pounds. Um, plus, you need to paddle, but uh, yeah, you need to paddle too. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the only thing is, you know, of course, uh, on a on a three week trip, you maybe you may use that. That's it. You Ten know, pounds. It's a lot. Yeah, you got to carry it the whole way. You may use it a couple of times, but you know, it's it's uh, it's tough. I, I to be honest, I think if I did it again, I would use the same setup that I did before. Yeah, because it only weighed like one pound, uh-huh. if that. Right. And it was a very small package. You know, I could it fit anywhere easily into my backpack, and so all those miles that I carried it, it was it wasn't uh, difficult at all. It wasn't a problem. Yeah. No. And I I think I know the answer to this, but um, many people would listen to the story about the wolves, and you were very exposed to grizzlies. And, and this kind of thing. I mean, big animals with big teeth and claws in, in general uh, along this route and, and no other humans around. Um, it is definitely the animal's place, not yours. And what kind of protection might you have been carrying? Uh, bear spray, shotgun, anything like that? No, I, I, I had a can of bear spray that a guy in Norman Wells lent it to me. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't carry it up there because you're not allowed to take it on an airplane. And when, uh, when I got to Norman Wells, there was no place to buy it. So I was going to go without it. And there was one guy in the town and he said, listen, I got this bear spray. Um, you can borrow it. You know, if you, uh, if you don't use it, and if you survive, you can give it to me when you get back when you get back here in a couple of weeks. Now the biggest thing I had was my Swiss Army knife, and I, I used to cut my cheese, uh, and maybe to slice a rope or two. Um, but I it, it didn't bother me. Yeah, you know you're right. There were there were grizzlies and wolves and moose and all kinds of animals out there, but I'm comfortable in that environment because I, I know how. To react, you know, I, I understand that this is their home and not mine. And for example, grizzlies, 
you know, I, I know what the rules are. You know, there's like five or six things you don't do. And if you don't do it, you'll be okay. You know, and I, I've spent over a year in grizzly country alone and unarmed, not all, not all at one time, but over the course of time. And um, I never had a, uh, I never had a serious encounter. I've seen grizzlies many, many times, but I, you know, I think it's kind of a, um, a respect that you need to have for the environment of the wildlife that lives there and an understanding of what you can do and what you can't do and what could be hazardous and what is safe to do. And if you don't have this attitude that you're at the top of the food chain and you can do what you want, then I think your, your humility will carry you through because it'll still be about common sense and recognizing uh, where you are and, and what you have to do to get through it safely. Right. Are there safety, security, health concerns that we have not mentioned? No, I don't think so. I, you know, I, if, if you're, if you're in good condition, like I say, if you're, if you're fit enough to, to, to walk for three weeks, we'll take a long backpack. And, and if you're, uh, knowledgeable enough about the uh, environment that you're walking in, you know, I, I think the trip is doable. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's a uh, you know it's 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 unique. I think largely because of its history, and because of what happened up there with the pipeline and everything, and and uh, the, all these reminders. Every time you come to a a road maintenance camp or or an abandoned pump station, or see a derelict uh, tractor or, or truck, you know, it brings back um, the memory. You know, you realize that, you know, all these years ago, there were people here, you know, there were men that were working up here. Yeah, 50,000 uh, of them. <laughs> yes, a whole lot of them. And, uh, and, and, and so just seeing those remnants up there, and realizing, you know, what the history of it was, is I think the the extra added value is it's it's what makes it different from so many other trails. And then now for me, it was even more special being African American, because when the U.S. Army decided to build this pipeline up there. And had to deal with getting all that equipment from the railhead up to Norman Wells, and then along the pipeline route where it could be used to build a pipeline, the army shipped up a battalion of black soldiers, segregated U.S. Army, shipped them up to be laborers on the route. They didn't build the pipeline, but they were hauling all the equipment they would have to offload it from the trains when they got there at waterways, load it onto barges. The barges went down the Athabasca River. Every time they hit a rapid, they had to stop. They had to offload all the equipment from the barges, drive it around the rapids, wow. reload it back onto a boat, float it back down to the next rapid. Wow. When it got to the Slavi River, uh, the Slavi Lake, that lake is so big that they had to use a whole different kind of ship. Uh, and so they had to offload it there, 
put it on a bigger boat, float it all the way across the river to the outlet of the Mackenzie River, then take it all off again, put it back on a barge for rivers, and then and then ship it down the Mackenzie River. And again, every time they came to a rapid, they had to offload it, they had to put it in a truck, they had to drive it around. The other thing was that nobody back then um, knew how to drive the, the, the ships, the boats, the barges that were on the river. Nobody had any excuse. They At the beginning, they didn't know where the rapids were. Uh, they lost a lot of um, equipment due to uh, boating accidents and, and hitting rocks and things of that nature. Uh, but these uh, but these soldiers, that was their job, you know, and, and when they went up there, um, in the in the early summer of 1942, the first thing they had to do was to build cabins for the for the white soldiers who were coming up there, so that they could live in a cabin. And then these guys had to live in tents and had to spend the winter, you know, in tents. Uh, they were not allowed to interact with any of the indigenous people that were living there. They the soldiers told them that the black soldiers had tails and that they would eat them, that they'd eat their children. And it, it took a while for for the, uh, the the local people living there to uh, to realize that, you know, that these guys were just soldiers, you know, like anybody else. And so they had a really tough time. And that was, you know, for me, you know, because of my heritage, uh, that made it an extra special thing. I wanted to go there specifically because I wanted to see what it was like for those guys who who uh, who were sent up. They didn't tell them where they were going. They didn't tell them how long they were going to be there. They couldn't tell their families where they were going. None of them had been out of the States. They weren't used to cold weather. Uh, it was rough. It was really rough. In fact, really? yeah. when I came home, I, I started looking to try to find somebody who had been there. You know, I wanted to see if there were if there was any soldier still alive uh, who had been stationed up there, and it took me two years, but I did find I found the last living survivor or last person alive who was in that army uh, uh, battalion that they sent up there, and and I interviewed him on several occasions, and and he told me the story. You know, he told me. Uh, how tough it was up there, you know? And so that was another reason for me to, to go up and experience that. Was he you know, in New York tough. or somewhere else? He's in New Jersey. New Jersey. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's in New Jersey. Uh, uh, and, and interestingly, I, I found him because there was a, a Canadian Native American guy who was about my age and he grew up in the Northwest Territories along the Mackenzie River. And when he was growing up as a kid, there were other native kids like him who were half black. And their fathers were soldiers that were on this route. Uh-huh. And so he grew, when he grew up, he became a playwright of all things. And he wanted to write a play about the soldiers and the kids that he grew up with. And so he was looking for a black survivor. Now he had photos that were taken by the soldiers when they were there with with these kids' moms. Uh, 
And so he, um, he actually had what I didn't have. He had actual photos of soldiers. And he was the guy who found the guy I found. And then when he found him, uh, he contacted me. And then I got in touch with the guy. His name was Sergeant Toller, uh, the soldier's name. And uh, I went and visited him. And he said that when this Native American guy visited him earlier and showed him the photos that he had, he knew every guy in that photo. And he said, oh, yeah, that's Charlie Jones. You know, he was from Chicago, you know, and and that's an old ladies, you know, Corporal so-and-so. Yeah, when I found him, he was like close to 90 years old. Right. uh, Still active you know he's he shot pool he was he went bowling he uh you know he's still driving a car he's living alone right a really nice guy you know he's, yeah and i really had a good time with him well and in a sense i mean for him to remember that well you know, people get very close in in situations of adversity and so mm-hmm. yeah for real but you know his one regret was that Nobody ever knew what they did. That nobody right. ever heard of the pipeline. Nobody ever heard of the two years of hard labor that that they spent while working up there. Uh, you know, they they joined the army to fight for their country, and you know, as he said, the army gave them a shovel instead of a gun. You know, and and made laborers out of them. You know, and yet. Mm-hmm. They felt that they were contributing to the war effort because the the country needed that oil to get to Alaska, and they were helping to get it there. But at the end of the day, nobody remembers the, the pipeline, and nobody remembers all the stuff they did. So you're a single father. Mm-hmm. You are an entrepreneur. You founded and are still running a business the the oldest you you say this <laughs> all right it's the it's a marketing consulting and research firm it's the oldest african-american owned marketing research and consulting firm in the united states of america and probably the world for that matter i started in in 1975 actually Yesterday, October the 6th, 1975, is the day I started my company. I had been in marketing already for nine years uh, when I decided to go out on my own. Uh, this was right after the civil rights movement and, and corporations were interested in selling their products and services to different minority groups. And so I saw an opportunity to uh, start a consulting firm in New York City. And yeah, I want to uh, I, I want to stay in business for 50 years. So yesterday I celebrated 47 years, got three more to go, still going strong. Everything is cool. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm proud of it, actually. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So obviously you have had competing interests or competing demands on your time and and income and all the rest just 
raising a family alone and and running a business like this is would be enough but you've been adventuring all over the world too how have you made space for for the adventuring in your life and in in both in terms of time and and finances mm. you know i i get asked that question a lot like how are you able to do that you know i mean you, you had to have a job and you had you know two kids at home and yet every year i would go out on a on a long trip you know looking back on it now you know, I realized that it wasn't about how could I arrange my life so I could take a trip. What it is, is that taking the trip gave me what I needed to go back home and do my job and be a father. You know, so it's kind of the reverse in a way. You know, I, I, I realized that the time I spent alone in the wilderness and just getting away from everything else, and and being on my own and and being you know kind of out of touch and living a different lifestyle it was like re-energizing me you know and i i would come home uh, a different person you know i would be uh refreshed and ready to get back to work and and all that now i did have um, my parents my kids grandparents they live nearby here in new york city and so uh, I knew that when I was gone, you know, my kids were safe. In fact, my parents lived close enough that my uh, my kids, when they stayed there, they knew kids who lived there that were in their school because it was in the same kind of district. So right. it was really easy. Of course, uh, you know, my, my parents loved them and they loved staying with their grandparents. So that was good. Yeah. And then for my, for my business, um, I had a partner who was my brother, my mm-hmm. younger brother. I recruited him when I, right after I started the business, he was just um, coming out of college and it was the only job he ever had, you know, and he could run it after, you know, after a, a very short period of time, he knew how to deal with clients and, you know, I taught him the business. And so when I went away, I could feel confident that my business was still going to be okay. Even mm-hmm. though I couldn't call him, I couldn't contact him, I couldn't communicate right. at all. You know, I, I never had to worry about anything because, you know, basically he knew what I knew and, and that, you know, we being brothers, you know, it would be, uh, he would be somebody I could trust and somebody I had confidence in. And so I had the best of both worlds, really. You know, I was living a dream, you know, all through those years. I decided when I started my business, I wasn't going to wait 10 years, you know, until the business got established and and secure before I went out and took a vacation. A lot of people I knew uh, back then were saying, you know, you, you just started your business. You know, how can you be away for weeks at a time? You know, it could wreck your business. And And my response was, I want my business to work for my life, you know, and if I'm going to be a a slave to my business, then I don't want to do it. You know, I I want the business to be able to support my lifestyle and to be able to, uh, uh, to enable me to, to, to be away from the business uh, for periods of time. And to be honest, it, it worked out great. It worked out really well. In fact, 
in in 2016, I was elected to the the Marketing Research Hall of Fame. My industry has a Hall of Fame, and I was elected into it by my peers. And only one person a year gets in, and so uh, I did okay. I did okay in in, mm-hmm. in business. So, yeah, I have I have clients all over the world, and I like it. And so, yeah, I go back to you know I'm living a dream. You know, I, I I like the I like living in New York City. I like the business that I have, and yet you know when I can get out of town and throw a pack on and uh, and disappear into the into the wilderness for a while, you know I love that too. I mean, yeah. That's why I'm still good looking after all these years. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, not all that good looking either. <laughs> so where do you, I'm sure this has evolved over the decades, but where do you learn about new trails? How do you, how do you find uh, Everywhere. You know, so somebody will send me an email and say, have you heard of this trail? Or I'll, I'll look at, Discovery Channel or National Geographic, and you know there'll be, you know, a, a program about the caribou migration, you know, in in Alaska, and people would say, oh, that's really interesting. I like that. I would look at that same show and I'd say, I have to go there. You know, I, I want to see that in person. And so it's the it's the curiosity that that really is the driving uh, factor on this. You know, I my trips are not just trips to walk. My trips are trips to learn something, to see something. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go on a glacier, so I went to a glacier. You know, I wanted to see a caribou migration, so I spent uh, some weeks up in Alaska and, and Canada. You know, I, I'm especially interested in people. I have, a, I have a degree in psychology. I studied ethnography, and I'm interested in cultures, and especially cultures that, or, or people who live in remote areas, people who live a subsistence lifestyle, uh, people who live off the grid. I, I'm, I'm curious and I've always been curious about how they live and, and how that works. And in order to really do it, uh, I realized I have to go there. I have to, you know, I want to see it in person. And that's been the focal point of, of the majority of the trips that I've taken. So I've been to, to Lapland where the reindeer herders are in in, in northern Sweden and northern Norway and Finland. I've been up there several times. I've been in Baffin Island uh, in the Canadian Arctic. I've been in Greenland. I've been in, in Alaska several times. I've walked across the outback. I've been in Tasmania a couple of times. The Quechua people, the Inca descendants in the Andes, I went to visit them, you know. And so, we, you know, I, I, I need to to be able to walk there or at least a final couple of days or whatever. Um, but that's what I do. I want to, I want to learn something. I want to see, especially people, you know, and I, I'll decide that I I'm curious about, let's say the, the Inuit or Eskimo people in Alaska. So I'll study their history and their culture and their religion and their tradition and what they eat for breakfast and everything. But um, I need to go there, you know, I need to just see it for myself. And so I figure out how to get there and I put together an expedition, one person expedition, and I yep. just go there. I, I don't know anybody. I've never been there. I've never seen it. And I get there and then people, they're like, who are you? 
you know, and and where's the rest of your party? Now I'm here by myself. Well, where are you coming from? New York City. New York City? That's crazy. Well, why why are you here? What are you coming here? So I tell them what I just told you. You know, I, I'm curious about your culture, your history, how you live. And they can't believe it. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, man. You mean to tell me you came all the way from New York City by yourself just because you're curious about how we live? And I say, yeah, that's it. And not only that, I say, and not only that, listen, I'm not going to be a burden to you because I brought all my own food. I got my own tent. I got all my own gear. I got all my equipment. Mm-hmm. I said, and if you need help doing anything, any manual labor, for the time I'm here, I'm here to help you. What I really like to do is just talk to people, uh, ideally the older people, and find out what you're about. And they can't believe it. You know, they, they're so, you know, uh, amazed that somebody would come up. You know, they tell me, you know, our our culture is dying. The, the young people don't want to stay here. You know, they they don't speak the language anymore. As soon as they get old enough, they leave. And, you know, when, when the older folks die, all that oral tradition is going to disappear, you know. And yet you come up here because you want to know about this. And so, you know, in the process, you know, I've, I've, I've made a lot of friends around the world uh, just because I know how to listen to people. You know, I can go there and I could sit and let them tell me their stories. And I tell you, they're just as curious about me, you know, living in New York. What's that about? You right. know, how, how does that work? You know, yep. so you know, it's kind of a two-way street there. And and it's been great. You know, it's been great. I've been doing it for decades. And I, I really enjoy it. That's really the the crux of, of, all, my, of all my trips. In, in 1993, I was elected into the, the Explorers Club. Uh, and uh, so I've been a member now for like 29 years. I'm now on the board of directors of the club, and I and I'm actually chair of the club's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. And so right. uh, all my time that I spent with indigenous people, people from different cultures, it's given me a lot of insight into into how people live and and how people relate and how people react. Well, and certainly in in the world of exploration and expeditioning and and adventuring, that club is is much more than just a club. This is a a a very uh, it's a real honor for you to have been elected into it and be serving on the board, and and it's uh, that's no small thing um, for those who are not familiar with it. What my my question here is: What trail do you dream of doing, or what 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 do you plan to do next? I guess is is also the you know. <laughs> well, well, first of all, I'm just back from a trip. Uh-huh. I uh, I was in um, Swedish Lapland a couple of weeks ago for a a long trip through the mountains. Um, it was a backpack trip sponsored by the. Uh, Swedish uh, upscale clothing and gear company, Fowl Raven. And I, I spent time up there. That was really a nice trip. My my next trip uh, is probably going to be to Morocco. I have a trip that I've been working on 
that I was going to go on before COVID hit in the high Atlas mountains of, uh, of Morocco. And there are people living there called the Berbers. Right. And I have a, uh, I got some maps and I, I mapped out a kind of a circular route through the mountains that will take me through three, maybe four different communities out there in the mountains. And, uh, and so I'm going to go out there and, see who I can meet and see what I can learn, see who I can talk to. I, I can speak a bit of French, which in Morocco is the, the, the non-native language. And right. so uh, hopefully that will uh, that will be enough for me to, to communicate and, and <laughs> gather some knowledge, you know, and experience out there. Yep. So that's my next one. Sounds exciting. And, uh, uh, they're all exciting. Right. Well, so how can listeners follow up, learn more about you, learn more about your adventures? Well, if anybody's curious, uh, that would be great. You know, you mentioned that I wrote a book. I also have a, uh, a website. It's called jrinthewilderness.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And uh, yeah, if anybody's interested, you know, reach out if you have any uh, questions or you want to plan a trip or you want to know anything. I'm, I'm always happy to communicate with, with uh, people who love being in the outdoors. And I'll just say your, your book's title is way out there, uh, Adventures of a Wilderness Trekker. It's got five stars on Amazon. <laughs> five yep. out of five. It's a good book. It's fun. well yeah i you know i i try to tell simple stories you know i the difference i think between my book and a lot of books that i read about outdoor travelers and adventures or whatever is because you know i waited until i got older to write my book and some of the books i read you know, there's a lot of macho in there. You know, I escaped this and I, there was a storm and I got through it and animal, you know, and, and I think my book is more um, introspective. You know, I talk about, uh, about what I've learned, you know, and how it's changed me. And, uh, and plus, I, you know, I've been doing it so long. I, I have a million stories. I could write 10 books, you know, uh, <laughs> so many yeah. incidents and, and things like that and and the fact that that mostly i go by myself you know and and that i'm a person of color you know people find different things that are unique about it right uh and i think that's why the book is selling so well well the outdoor world is is awfully white and mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on, I'm sure you have many thoughts <laughs> but, <laughs> but on, on this issue, but would you like to say a little bit to how greater inclus- inclusiveness can be encouraged in, in the outdoor world, the outdoor industry, uh, people having more access, people feeling more welcome? Yeah, I could speak to that. I, you know, I, I've been backpacking all these years, and in all the years I've been backpacking, 
I never saw another person of color. You know, now fair to say <laughs> that in most of my trips, I don't see a whole lot of any kind of people. You know, so uh, uh, but. I haven't seen other people, you know, most of the people that I see, almost all of them are, are Caucasian, like you mentioned. And when I see them, they very often mention to me, hey, I never saw a black person out here before, you know. And so for me, what I do is, you know, when I come back from a trip, what I do is a lot is I, I go to different schools and I talk to uh, uh, to kids who, and, and basically kids who grew up like me, kids who grew up from a working class family where, you know, their likelihood of getting a, a college education may not be that high, you know, their their hopes and expectations may not be that great because of their uh, situation. And and I tell them, listen, you know, don't, don't let your situation stop you from dreaming, you know, that if you want to do something, if you want to be anything, you can do it if you really, really want it. You know, I, I tell them, you know, nobody's going to give it to you. You know, it's not going to be easy. But if you want it badly enough, you can do anything you want, you know, and, and I'm proof that it can happen. You know, uh, uh, I always wanted to be an explorer. People used to tell me when I was young, yeah, you can't be an explorer. You know, you got to be rich. You know, you have that money. You have to be white. You have to be this, that, and the other. And it was my own parents, you know, they told me, no, 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 no. You know, you can do it if you want to do it. And and I was able to do it. I, I you know, I did all my trekking that I always loved to do. I went into business. I started a company. I got a college degree. And, and not to push myself forward or anything, but if you need to know that there was somebody who was able to do it, then I'm telling you that I did it and you can do it too. And my, my presentation is actually called if I can do it, you can do it. Because I don't believe I'm, I'm special. I don't believe I'm anything but ordinary guy. But I had a dream and, and I wanted it badly. And I was able to make it happen. And I believe that if I can do it, anybody can do it. And, and I tell you, the teachers all say to me, listen, you know, we, we try to tell these kids this all the time. But until they actually can see somebody who's yeah. actually grown up like they are and was able to do it, that makes a whole lot of difference in the world. And and it's really nice because a lot of times what the teachers do after my talk is they have a class with the kids and, and a lot of times they'll ask the kids to like write a composition, like what do you want to be when you get older and what kinds of barriers do you think you're going to have to overcome and, you know, how you know, how committed are you to really make this dream happen? And and the kids write it down. And then a lot of times the teachers send me the, the compositions and to sit there and read it. I tell you, it's really uplifting, you I'll know, bet. and, you know, and, and I'm not just talking about, you know, black kids. I'm talking about kids from from working class, you know, hard scrabble, growing up in the street, whether they're white, black, Asian, you know, Latino, right. anybody. I want them all to get out there. I want everybody to be successful. You know, I yeah. want everybody to 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 have a good life. You know, and so uh, I I try to um, pay it forward. You know, when I when I come back and and try to influence and maybe motivate 
uh, these kids and tell them, listen, you don't have to be a slave to your, your background and your upbringing. You know, you can make it happen if you want. So hopefully, you know, you get a few, but that's what I do. You know, that's what I want to do. I do it. I'm actually doing it next week. I'm going to, a, you know, another book tour. When I'm in town doing a, a book tour, I usually uh, ask around if there's a school that I can visit and, 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 to, and talk to the kids about it. Right. Well, J.R. Harris, thank you very much for talking with us today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Good talking to you, Mr. King, <laughs> Mr. Sky King. <laughs> yeah, stay well, okay? And uh, again, I, it was nice. Thank you for listening to the Trails Around the World podcast. Please visit us online at trailsaroundtheworld.com and please join our Facebook group under the same name. If you liked this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcast source. This is Sky King, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, happy trails to you, and please remember to leave no trace as you enjoy the outdoors.